of A Slice of Medieval. We have a wonderful guest today, a real treat in Tony Richards. Tony's a full-time writer who lives in Pembrokeshire, a specialist on the history of the Tudors. He's renowned for his Elizabethan and Brandon trilogies. He's also, and I have to say this, a great supporter of fellow authors. And I'll never forget the support and encouragement Tony gave me when I wrote my first book and every book since. Welcome, Tony. It's lovely to have you on. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Oh, and I did forget to mention that this is a slice of medieval going rogue. <laughs> because we're Oh, it is. Tudors. Yes. Good point. Yes. <laughs> we're outside our medieval comfort blanket at the moment. Wow. <laughs> we're not allowed to mention yeah. James I then. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming rogue with us, Tony. So today we're talking about a remarkable brother and sister from the Tudor era. Everybody, I should think, has heard of Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, probably Elizabeth I's last love. But I'm not sure as many people will have heard of his sister, Penelope Devereux, who was actually just as fascinating. And Tony's written books about both of them. Now, I will explain. Tony's books are fiction, but they're incredibly well-researched. They're some of the most factual fiction you'll ever come across, but told in such a way that is entertaining, enjoyable, just totally remarkable. You find yourself in the lives of these people. So Robert and Penelope were the children of Lettice Nollis. That's how I pronounce it. Yeah, it's just some such a great pronounce yeah. it Lettice, but I always think of a Lettice. <laughs> <laughs> And the grandchildren of Catherine Carey, who was Elizabeth I's cousin, or possibly her sister, but we'll talk about that later. So, Tony, Robert Devereux was Earl of Essex, stepson of Robert Dudley, and executed for treason in 1601. What's his story? It's one of these fascinating things where the more you look into it, the more complicated it becomes, which I love that, actually. And his story is really about somebody with deep problems which he never really overcame and I find that fascinating because it's it's um, not normally covered in history the psychological difficulties that people struggle with now mm. these days we talk of mental health and as if it's something we all take for granted but um, I can remember where nobody ever used to speak of mental health it was one of these things it goes back to his father Walter Devereux was sent by Queen Elizabeth to conquer Ireland, like like you do. And uh, he, he did it on the basis that he would use his own money as long as she paid him back. Mm. And uh, what happened was that while he was over there, he died mysteriously whilst uh, drinking a glass of wine. And so did his servant. <laughs> Historians still say, well, there's no proof that it was poisoned. And who would have poisoned <laughs> him anyway? Well, I could give you a list of about 100 people within a 10-mile radius of people, would happily poison Elizabeth's representative who was invading their country, etc., uh, etc. Et but Robert Devereux was just becoming a teenager at the time, well, he was sort of nine or ten, and uh, it had a profound effect on him because he suddenly became the poorest earl in England. His father's fortune had all gone, paying the troops in Ireland, and uh, he had Chartley Manor, uh, but no money for the upkeep of it. And his mother, uh, Lettice, was absolutely outrageous because um, she almost ignored her children. She lived a, a wonderful life of partying and occasionally popped in to see them. <laughs> and so it would have been a very different story if not for somebody that I've got a huge admiration for, which is William Cecil. Now, William Cecil, uh, Lord Burghley, run uh, Burghley House as a home for noble waifs and strays, really, and prepared 
people like Robert for court. Mm. And um, I think Robert could have got his money back if he'd have asked, by the way. But anyway, uh, the, interestingly, he was thrown together with uh, William Cecil's son, also called Robert. So I, I did have these passages where Robert is talking to Robert, you know, that's, <laughs> which is a real nuisance. So that they go back to childhood. Robert Cecil and uh, Robert Devereux, which is which is quite fascinating, isn't it? But in terms of what happens later on, so eventually he does. He goes up to Cambridge, in fact, and does jolly well, and and graduates from Cambridge, uh, a record young age. And uh, his his personal tutor is Doctor Whitgrift, who was the um, Archbishop of Country later. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah so so he really was. Um, going for it and so he he's he's underrated quite often in terms of his intellect because of his social ineptitude really mm. he was an awful judge of character and would would easily be led astray by anybody at all really <laughs> could be bothered to lead him astray but he ended up at court and he was tall and um, for, for in those days uh, considered very strikingly good looking and he was exactly in the right place at the right time because Robert Dudley ran off with Robert's mother, Lettuce, and they married in secret. Really, I think, just to really annoy the Queen, you know? <laughs> I don't think of anything that would annoy her more, can you? <laughs> I'm sure it worked. It did work. <laughs> and you would think then she would say, well, that's it. I've had enough of those Devereux lot. They can forget it. But... I think that she took Robert under her wing to spite Lettuce and prove that she could be a better mother than Lettuce ever, because these are all my theories, by the way. <laughs> and um, so when I read that they were lovers, I always think it is really quite a nonsense. It was very much a, a mother and a belligerent teenage son relationship. And he he seemed to often forget that she was the queen and he would burst into her um, bedchamber when she was um, without her wig and things like that. Other people have been sent to the tower for less, you know, and she would reprimand him like he was a six-year-old uh, in front <laughs> of all of her ladies, really on the least pretext, you know, for the least thing she would enjoy reprimanding him. So if you can sort of imagine that tension where it was a love-hate relationship. So they used to play endless game of cards. And it's, it's well documented that uh, he would often let her win and lull her into her false sense of security and then win big, which is a, a good <laughs> tactic, isn't it? And she'd be absolutely furious then because um, she never believed that she wasn't winning on merit, you know? <laughs> I'm cautious of putting too many spoilers for people that want to read the book uh, because he had some... Amazing adventures, storming Cadiz, and he saw himself as a and as an adventurer, but he mm. didn't have any money, you see. So he saw Francis Drake with like ten people each carrying in a casket, and they lays them before the Queen and throws them open. And one is full of gold, one is full of pearls, one's full of diamonds, you know. And and he just seemed to have these for the taking from the Spanish treasure fleets. <laughs> so Essex said to Drake, is it okay if I come along with you on one of these trips? And he said, no, actually, it's not okay. <laughs> you don't, you're not a sailor. We don't really want people like you because you're in it for the wrong reasons. And in fact, my book about Drake uh, gives the background to that because he did mm. take somebody with him who he really shouldn't have, and it ended badly. So he's he was, he was um, permanently marked by that experience. Essex if he'd have been a, a normal sort of chap, he would have said, OK, fair enough. I'll find some other way of making my fortune. I'll set up the merchant adventurers or something. <laughs> Instead of that, he arranged for a pal to have a boat waiting just round the corner from Plymouth and rode down there overnight and um, decided to sail with him regardless and surprise him. Yeah. And the Queen found out about this through he had Essex had lots of enemies. And I think Robert Cecil was a bit of a whisperer in the Queen's ear. And so Robert foolishly used to confide in her in Robert Cecil. And then he would go straight to the Queen with everything, you know. And um she sent the Queen sent Robert's grandfather on a horse on a wet night uh to bring him back. Can you imagine that? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's dreadful. 
anyway, he was too late. And um, when when Essex uh, caught up with Drake's fleet and surprised him, Drake uh, was horrified because he thought he might end up in the tower for aiding and abetting her <laughs> against the Queen's wishes. But that's just a little insight into the character of this guy and what he did. And it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So you would think that as an author writing about a bloke like this, it would just be, you'd be tearing your hair out, didn't you? That's what you think. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it was great fun. I really enjoyed it. And I felt really sorry to see the back of him. My next book went straight on to his enemy at court, uh, Rally. So I was I was able to do some interesting crossover and show mm. Essex from Raleigh's point of view, you know, which is quite fun. Mm. And then when I finished that, um, I, I then went on to the next one about his sister, which we'll come on to perhaps. And so I was able to show all those same events from his sister's point of view, his elder sister. So that's been quite fun, really. I'll let you into a secret. Don't tell anybody, right? But my new book, which I'm halfway through now, is about his wife, Frances, another hugely underestimated woman like Penelope. But her father was Francis Walsingham, who mm. rather confusingly named his daughter after himself um, with an E instead of an I. But that's a bit annoying, isn't it? She was his only surviving child, you see. So I, my theory is that he shared his, his spy-mastering codes and everything with her. But also she was married to Philip Sidney and then to Robert Devereux. So, you know, there's some there's some fascinating um, crossovers, which you don't find in a lot of the accounts. Mm. That was a rather long answer to a short question. That was a long answer. That's <laughs> all right. I'll cut some of it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make the next one a yes or no. Go on. <laughs> well, you, you might easily be able to do that, actually, because I, I was going to ask you a uh, about was he Elizabeth's last love, but you've kind of said that it's a it's a more of a mother son yeah, relationship. You've got the whisperers of court and the gossipers, you know, they love a bit of scandal, and this goes <laughs> right back to Henry VIII and his sort of courtly love thing and everything. Elizabeth liked nothing better than for people to think she had this toy boy who was desperately <laughs> in love with her, and of course Robert liked the idea that he was actually sleeping with the Queen. <laughs> uh, he thought that was hilarious and um, helped him in all sorts of ways because everybody wanted favours off of him then. Mm, so. Yeah. They paid good money for just to be <laughs> recommended for a promotion or something. And if they thought he was actually um, the Queen's lover, what, who better, you know? But uh, uh, my own view is that it's, it's a, it, it was a very different kind of love and there was a deep affection between them. And that makes what actually happened just so much worse. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because um, what actually happened was he betrayed Elizabeth, didn't he? Did he really make an attempt on the throne? Did he really think he could become king? I I, I um, gnash my teeth when I see people, especially people that really should know better, actually saying that he was going to make himself king or something. Because what he was trying to do was to overthrow what he saw as the Queen's corrupt advisors. The Queen was getting on a bit by then. I mean, she, mm. well, she was nearly my age, you know. <laughs> and, um, the, she was surrounded by these advisors, in inverted commas, and specifically Robert Cecil, who were very much manipulating everything, not necessarily just for their own benefit, for the what they saw as the, the best, what was best for the country, but it was what mm. they thought was best for the country, which wasn't always what Robert Devereux thought was best for the country. <laughs> they came up with things like, you know, let's let's ban drinking on a Sunday. And uh, he didn't think that was a good idea at all. You know? <laughs> so his his rebellion was supposed to be to replace all of them with people of his own choosing. And so that the Queen would be much happier surrounded by people that um, had the right motivation. But that's deeply flawed as a strategy, isn't it? <laughs> she had an army and he had a whoever he could wrestle together from Wales and wherever else, you know. And she also mm. had 40 years of experience uh, <laughs> judging people. Like you say, he wasn't a great judge of character. Elizabeth, I think she got it wrong sometimes, but most of the time she got it right. 
this is my my theory, which I hope comes through in the book without actually using the words, is that uh, my, my first degree is in psychology, by the way, and the, the concept of emotional intelligence is brilliantly illustrated by Robert Devereux because it's all about not being able to empathize and put yourself in the other person's position and that you're about to insult their intelligence you know and that they won't thank you for that and even when he tried to flatter people it was all a bit obvious whereas others I'm thinking um, gosh there's lots but particularly uh, well Robert Cecil is a, is a person that I would say but mm. uh, let's pick somebody different Mountjoy Blount who, who married Penelope was a master of winning over people and judging their character well you know what I mean mm. and he tried his best to share some of that with Robert <laughs> but it, if you're lacking emotional intelligence then that's it really and mm. it goes back to his childhood I think yeah what about the effect of of his his treason on Elizabeth I mean how did how, how did she take it do you think it's hard to sort out the myths from the reality mm. she was absolutely devastated it was kind of the beginning of the end, quite frankly, because if you look at her, her life after that, she became paranoid and it was a lonely existence. She didn't find anybody to replace him, really, you know what I mean? She was surrounded mm. by people that would love to have replaced him. But if you look at it, who who replaced him? Um, you know, um, people that were thinking of themselves first, specifically people like Walter Raleigh saw a great opportunity not to become her lover, by the way, <laughs> but to become her confidant and to become her right hand man. He was captain of her guard and things like that, you know, and uh, she wasn't really that interested. And uh, when it's tragic when you read about her last days where she became hugely superstitious and um, somebody had predicted that she would die in bed, which is fairly safe predictions <laughs> and uh, so she refused to go to bed and would um, try and sleep sitting up on cushions that's the extent to which she was starting to suffer you know and mm. uh, so very sad and um, what I chose to do in the book uh, was to end it pretty much with with the end of uh, Robert Devereux's life story mm. and I pick it up from Penelope's point of view his sister's point of view later on and so readers that are interested in that side of things I've got an interest in other perspective on it then. And I've still got to do his wife's point of view about the whole thing, of course. And it makes really good reading. That's what I liked about the Brandon trilogy, that you start with one and then move on to yeah. Mary and Catherine. And Char and you've got all three mm. of them, Mary, Catherine and Charles. And it's like all their stories are intertwined. But mm -hmm. you look in, you're changing the focus. When I was writing about Catherine, I went up to um, Grimsthorpe Castle. Mm -hmm. Because I always visit the, I visit the locations in the summer, I write in the autumn and winter, and then I edit in the spring. So that's worked for me brilliantly for the last 12, 13 years. But um, when I was up at Grimslop Castle, I thought I'd go to Spilsby Church where uh, Catherine's tomb is, because it's a very bizarre tomb. And I was curious to see it, but the church isn't normally open, but I'd arranged to have access. So my wife and I were in there, alone in Spilsby Church in Lincolnshire and um, I walked up and I put my hand on her, her tomb and I felt such a connection with her mm -hmm. it's real hairs on the back of your neck kind of thing because I know so much about her you see yeah I had that with Nicola when I went to her tomb at Swayton oh yes it's a very real tangible yeah. thing isn't it it when is you when you spend know... so long looking into these people and then you're yeah. suddenly confronted by them right. it's like wow <laughs> And I was alone in the church. There was me and a bee. That's that's the thing, isn't it? If there'd have been lots of people like in Westminster Abbey, then you can't really get that. No. Mind you, my, my Westminster Abbey anecdote is I was studying Margaret Beaufort's tomb. It was this time of year and the, 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 the sort of autumn sunlight came through the stained glass windows and lit her face up in a sort of pinky glow, mm. which was chilling you know, in a nice way. It was really moving because mm. um, she's got a kind of, almost like a gilded bronze patina on her mm. memorial. And it really reflected the light back, you know? I thought, wow, that is something. Anyway, what was, what was the question? <laughs> well, I have another question. 
Before we move on to Penelope, I was thinking about it the other day. In Elizabeth and Essex, the film with Bette Davis, she'd given Essex a ring. If he'd sent it to her before his execution, she would have reprieved him. That is just total fantasy, isn't it? But did she actually question whether or not to execute him? She always delayed executing anybody Mm, as long as she possibly could. But I tried really hard. I loved that story about the ring. Yeah. And I, I'm only going to include it if I can put my historian's hat on. Have you seen my historian's hat, by the way? It's like a Viking <laughs> helmet. But I couldn't find anything anywhere at all other than going right back to that film. Mm. And I believe that it's it's where the scriptwriters, because that film is historical fiction anyway, so yeah. the scriptwriters mm. quite legitimately taken up a good story and run with it. I decided not to do that, but there's enough poignant moments in in his last hours in the Tower of London without having to do any of that because he really believed it's a, it was vaguely reminiscent of, of poor Anne Boleyn hoping for a reprieve at the eleventh hour, and I think that or, or Lady Jane, any of them, you know, it would have been so easy, wouldn't it, to say, I tell you what, you can be exiled to Brittany, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was a stroke of the pen and that would have been it. Honour would have been satisfied. And instead of that, um, it wasn't. And I think that Robert Devereux really believed that because of his whole life, really, from boyhood spent with the Queen, that that would mean something. And of course, uh, there was nothing. And it, there's an interesting parallel here, isn't there, between Elizabeth and her father. You wonder whether mm. you know, this nature nurture thing. She <laughs> learnt about being a prince, which I was. This is a strange thing from from him as much as from Machiavelli. And whether there could be something in the in the character that was quite stubborn, really. And um, she thought, well, you know, if I let let him off, who will be next? Mm. I think often Elizabeth was presented with, uh, I mean, she had quite a few problems to deal with during <laughs> the reign, to say the least. It seems to me that she she did try and look at things from a variety of points of view. Yeah. She did try and weigh things up, which in a monarch is no bad thing, really. So she's not a kind of off with your head sort of person. That's right. Yeah, But I think also around her, there were enough councillors who would have advised her that he'd taken up arms against the crown, he had to go. Yeah. If ever anybody hesitated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think, yeah, I, I see that as a, as, a, as a good character trait in, yeah. on yeah. Elizabeth's part, that she didn't have a knee-jerk reaction to these things. She did take time. And, and I mean, it must have driven her councillors around the bend, mm-hmm. um, the amount, as you say, that she she hesitated. With Henry, once he decided somebody was dead, you know, going to be executed, that was it. He totally Absolutely. wiped them out of his yeah. mind, which is why he could get betrothed to Jane Seymour on the day Anne Boleyn was executed, because as yeah. far as he was concerned, she was dead the last time he saw her. The, the 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 idea the notion of somebody on death row believing yeah. absolutely yeah. that the relationship would mean something and I think Anne Boleyn mm-hmm. believed that the relationship was worth something to him you know yeah. what I mean yeah. um, I think with yeah, that yeah. as well there's that extent there's that other thing as nobody has ever executed a queen oh, gosh, why would yeah. anyone yeah. execute a queen if I'd have been Anne I'd believe well why would he yeah. do it. <laughs> He was a bit of a trailblazer, wasn't he, Rick? <laughs> <laughs> Not always in the best way. No, almost really? never in the best way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, so should we move on to his sister, do you think? Yeah. I must admit, I taught the Tudors for God knows how many decades, and I I know almost nothing, or I knew almost nothing about Penelope Devereux until... We talked talked about getting you onto the program, and and so I had I thought I better actually find out something about this about this woman. So she was a mystery to me until now. Well, she's still a mystery, but yeah, I'm well, sure you'll help with that. <laughs> Robert had two sisters, yeah, and it was a year between them, so he had two elder sisters and a younger brother. Interestingly, for me, as well as Penelope, who's the eldest, his other sister Dorothy lived about. 20 minutes drive from where I live at Carew Castle. 
And uh, Robert himself lived at Lamphy Palace, which is about barely half an hour from where I live. So whenever I wanted to, when I was writing about them, I could go to these locations and um, just wander around and get a sense of the proportions and everything like that. Hmm. I'd written two trilogies, yeah, which had worked for me really well because of the crossover between the three books. So like the Tudor trilogy, Henry is born in the first, comes of age in the second and becomes king in the third. And we've spoken about the Brandon trilogy where, you know, you've got to chat with two wives and uh, not at the same time, but pretty, <laughs> pretty much. And um, I thought I'd write an Elizabethan trilogy to finish it off and take the, because Owen is first meeting with Catherine of Valois. And I wanted to go to the last days of Elizabeth when she's sitting on her cushions, refusing to die, you know. So I was going to write about three of the Queen's favourites. And I, I chose Drake. I, I did them in kind of date order. So I did Drake, then Essex, then Raleigh. And that was going to be the trilogy. And while I was researching Essex, I came across Penelope's story. And I was just absolutely fascinated how a woman could be so modern in her outlook. Yes, yeah. Outrageously. I mean, modern by like, not even now, a few years time. (laughs) (laughs) And um, she didn't care at all. She lived life on her own terms. And how could an Elizabethan, a lady in waiting to the Queen, how could she do that? You know, and then I, I started looking into her story and I thought, I, I'm going to have to write another trilogy about three of Elizabeth's ladies. And it, it just came straight to me who they would be because Penelope had to be the first. And I've told you already, but don't tell anybody that Francis is the second. <laughs> and you have to guess who the third one is. That's a good little game, isn't it? I've already started researching the the third of the ladies, by the way. And I've <laughs> I've got a, an artist, cover artist, who's very talented. I couldn't find the right picture of Penelope. And it, it's that poignant sort of slight note of sadness, mm. um, not a happy, smiling Penelope that's not had the best of lives, but she's made the best of her life. And I think that kind of sums mm. up Penelope. The problem I had was that she had so many children. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Wikipedia couldn't go <laughs> into meltdown and somebody put, oh, she had lots of children. Every other chapter, she's having another baby. I started running out of ways to cover that without it becoming repetitive. <laughs> uh, so that, that must have been hard, mustn't it? You know, And of course, um, because of her behaviour, uh, she was persona non grata at court and her mother, of course, who was banished forever for life. And then her brother didn't help matters at all. <laughs> so out of all of that, you get a fascinating um, story. And at the moment, as we speak, a, a, a really talented actress called Ruth, Ruth Redman is narrating the audiobook for me. And I'm reviewing it as, as she goes along. So she uploads a few chapters at a time. And I find it amazing to hear Penelope's voice and it's quite moving sometimes I think did I write that (laughs) surely not because when you hear an actress doing it and putting the right pauses that's why I can't narrate my own audiobooks because I'd keep breaking off into anecdotes I think but um, (laughs) it's it's that's, that's coming out hopefully in a month's time it's it's just amazing to 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 hear um, Penelope's voice that, that, that's more so I've had another eight books nine books done as audio books but that's the one that really cut through you know mm. I mean she's she had a as you say a, a modern life uh, <laughs> she was she was uh, well we've we've said that the the family obviously lost the father uh, at a difficult difficult ages perhaps and she she ended up marrying Robert Rich the grandson of the the infamous absolutely of all people you know (laughs) and uh, and he was a puritan so penelope you know on the one side of the equation penelope loved dancing parties getting drunk um fooling around with young chaps and things like that and is that is that because of her mother mother's influence (laughs) (laughs) on the other side you've got baron rich who is a puritan who thinks all of that is the devil's work and really <laughs> a woman's place is very much in the home and looking after his ch- his heir and successor, you know, what a combination, you know, but yeah. whose idea that was, well, you don't have to guess because I'm going to tell you it was <laughs> Robert Dudley's idea yes, because he was a stepfather, of course, because he'd married her mother and uh, 
he, he saw it as his duty to find her a suitable husband. And his idea of a suitable husband was the one that would pay him the biggest bonus <laughs> in return for um, the hand of his stepdaughter. Robert Rich was rich by name and rich by nature <laughs> because he was... He'd inherited a fortune, but he'd actually invested a lot of it in property and he was a massive landlord and didn't really know what to do with all of his money. So the idea of marrying into the nobility was a, an obvious move for him mm. that it worked out amazingly well. <laughs> but she was uh, she was betrothed as a child to Philip Sidney, wasn't oh, she? That's so, that's so sad because Philip Sidney, I mean, I, I almost wish I'd written a book about Philip Sidney, but um, I kind of get to cover uh, his adventures quite a lot in the one I'm working on now which i shan't tell you who it's about um <laughs> but he was almost the ultimate poet soldier you know the mm -hmm. warrior poet and he thought he had all the time in the world and he was very yeah. much in love with his stella which was penelope and wrote sonnets about her and everything like that and then almost behind his back he finds that um the earl of leicester's married her off to a rich lawyer mm -hmm. uh, absolutely horrified and he never quite recovered from that. And um, that whole story is fascinating to explore in a, in a novel, you know, where you've got the historical facts, then you've got all the stuff that, for various reasons, historians haven't had access to, like the conversations they might have had and things like that. It was great material to work with. I'm just waiting for the phone to ring now from Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd advise you to, to to eat and drink normally while you're waiting. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so her first love was Philip Sidney. She was married to Baron Rich. Yeah. Um, but then she fell in love with Charles Blount, Lord Mountjoy. Absolutely. Yeah. When she fell in love with him, he wasn't even Lord Mountjoy. Uh, they just really were made for each other to the extent where they were prepared to risk everything to be together, including doing it right in front of the Queen. So they would, <laughs> they would they would openly sit together holding hands and laughing and joking. And it was obvious to everybody in the room that they were very much in love with each other. And they didn't care at all. It was almost like, what are you going to do about it? You know, exactly how what her husband thought of that and how they coped with that is really part of the substance of the storyline in the book. You know, that um, I can't go into it too much detail here, but um, obviously some kind of accommodation was found. Because didn't she have, uh, she had children by yeah. Blount while she was still married? But and she living was very in... subtle because uh, <laughs> she called them rich, but uh, just to put the, the sort of boot in, she called her son Mountjoy <laughs> and said, can anybody guess why I called him Mountjoy? And... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, come in those days, it was if you were married, your children were legally your husband's unless he disowned them. Yes. Unless he actually, so she didn't have a choice with the surname. So, mm. but she, subtly she had this other way. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I guess he had a choice. Work. He had a choice, didn't he? He could have. He could have disowned them. He could have rejected yeah. them and said, the "Confusing Nothing to do with thing, me." The confusing thing is that when Lester died after the Armada, then Lettice married her servant, really, her master of the horse, who was Christopher <laughs> Blount, and. Um, He's a distant relation, like a second cousin. He's a Blount, but not the same as Charles Blount. So you mm. ended up with all, all <laughs> these um, confusing overlaps. But it just shows you that the, the networking at the time, you can see how it worked, can't you? That um, mm. obviously, if you were related, if you were part of the same family or whatever, then uh, it's almost um, almost like Westminster is these days, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. She was still married to... To Robert Rich, I guess one of the problems in those days was that the lack of divorce. If you divorced, you, you could you marry somebody else? All, it, it was work? quite easy to get a divorce. All you had to do was get an act of parliament. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that these days? If, <laughs> if you had to get an act of parliament to get a divorce. I do wonder, I did wonder in the book whether she thought it would be quite easy to put something in his tea, you know? Because <laughs> um, he was a kind of type A character and... Um, they really wanted him out of the way. But out of fairness to her, um, they 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 did reach this accommodation, which they both honoured. And it, it, in a funny sort of way, as a businessman, it suited him to still have privileged access to everybody because she was a socialite, you see. So she could basically charm 
even Spanish ambassadors and French kids and whoever, whoever they just they were just easily um, victim to whatever she wanted them to do. But she didn't abuse that. I don't. I never came across any evidence where she'd used her chance to abuse the 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 way that she lived her life. She had a sort of moral code, you know. But mm. it's very very modern <laughs> one. So, like for the Elizabeth, it was an eye opener for me to see that what I understood about the Elizabeth is it's like the Victorians. If you look at the way the Victorians mm. actually behaved, the, the whole idea that they were very right and proper is a nonsense. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think that was their aspiration, but it never actually reached that. <laughs> And I think that's the thing. You have these rules. Every um, generation has these rules they're all supposed to live by. But at the same time, they have fun breaking them. <laughs> yeah. So was Penelope implicated in her brother's rebellion? I did read that she was um, found guilty of treason or accused of treason. Well, um, this is I find myself hesitating because this is one of the, the good bits in the story. <laughs> As long as you promise not to tell anybody else. All right. <laughs> well, it might work as a teaser for everybody to go out and buy the book. Oh, then, yeah, to see that's read true. What else Penelope. <laughs> Put yourself in Robert Devereux's shoes, right? And um, he's in the on death row in the tower. Uh, we went, we went to the tower actually. There's the Devereux Tower, and that uh, we were we were given privileged access to it by the, the staff there. So that was really special. And we went into Raleigh's cell and everything like that. But anyway. He's there waiting for his pardon and it's not coming. And basically the, the priest comes and says, is there any, have you got any last requests? And he so he asks for pen and paper and he dashes off a, a list of those that are really responsible for leading him astray. And top of the list, he decides who better than his sister. He blamed Penelope <laughs> for what he did. And that is so outrageous. And to put it in writing as well, but out of fairness, they were all living in Essex House on the Strand, which used to be Leicester House, by the way. So it was all inherited from Robert Dudley. Massive mansion on the Strand with a, a Watergate onto the Thames, you know, so it's fantastic. It's almost like a palace, really. And so that was full of all these people like Henry Percy and you name it, they were there all plotting and having parties and stuff like that. Penelope and Robert had been secretly writing to King James of Scotland. They were well placed to know that of all the people uh, that might succeed Elizabeth, uh, if they had to put money on it, he he would be a, a good bet. So um, they were conspiring against the. It was it was punishable treason, punishable by death. To even talk about the death of the Queen, mm. but to be <laughs> writing to the King of Scotland and said, "Hi, when you're king." That was like, <laughs> They they put they put all the names in code, but the codes were pathetically obvious. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they said, you know, just for you to know, uh, we 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 would support you if you were king, and we will really um, help you. And uh, Penelope um, could help the Queen as well. Uh, Robert Cecil was also corresponding with James. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, the thing is, there was a fairly short list of suspects wasn't there, <laughs> of, of who might take over. Mm. And um, so you could choose. You could either pretend that you thought the Queen was going to live forever or you could do nothing or you could be proactive and start positioning yourself. And um, poor Walter Raleigh, he lacked judgment because he decided <laughs> to go up to the King and say, hi, I'm Walter Raleigh. I'm <laughs> going to be your captain of the guard when you're king <laughs> and he sent him off with a flea in his ear because he already had a captain of the guard who was scots you know mm. at, um, 10 times the size of walter raleigh with a <laughs> with a whole army of guards but penelope was behind the letters i think because she mm. was better judge of character and she was wheedling her way into king james's um not his affections but into his good books setting up positioning herself for the future you take all of that together, then you can see that Robert Devereux could have felt that she didn't discourage him from rebelling, so therefore she kind of encouraged him. Didn't she didn't she write letters to the Queen though and, and plead for him? Everybody did, and we've got those letters because um a lot of them are at Longleat in the Devereux papers, which I've I've got. Mm the two volume set which is fantastic if anybody's interested in all of this that was one of my main sources because not only are the letters all transcribed you don't have to struggle with the handwriting but they've got notes by um i think his name is walter Devereux, who, who actually transcribed them he's got notes which add 
a bit more background to each of the letters. Uh, the confusing thing is about the dates, which I was any historical fiction author will struggle with the dates where the years mm -hmm. move back and forth randomly. But never mind, I try to find a way around that. So yes, the answer is I said I'd do a yes or no answer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the trouble is we've forgotten the question now. Oh. <laughs> Implication in a brother's rebellion. Okay, um, so mo moving back slightly, Deborah's grandmother was Catherine Carey, who was rumoured to be the illegitimate daughter of Henry VIII by Mary Boleyn. How much truth do you think is in that? Well, it would be nice if they could do something clever with DNA, wouldn't it? <laughs> and uh, settle it for once and for all. What what I did find were all these references to the red hair as if that was as good as proof. Because <laughs> um, it was, the, if you look at pictures of Lettuce, his mother, um, Robert Deborah's mother, and then you put it side by side with a, a fairly similar portrait of Elizabeth, there's a striking resemblance. But Lettuce contrived that effect anyway. So mm. she used to go around in a gold state coach with six <laughs> white horses pulling it. And people used to cheer because they thought it was the Queen. And she used to encourage that. So she thought, I know what I'll do. I'll get all the footmen to dress up as pretend <laughs> yeoman and march behind, you know. But it used to drive Elizabeth bonkers when she did that. I think that they were all brought up, that they were of royal blood. And mm. uh, this goes, you know, this goes, runs like a thread through the whole of the story of the Tudors, doesn't it? Is mm. the illegitimate offspring of, of Henry and anybody you know to me that that um there's lots of uh, if only or what would have happened if sort of stuff you know mm. they certainly were quite close to the royal family so that's that's quite intriguing isn't it mm. i think it's interesting when i was looking into mary Boleyn for my heroines of the tudor world see i got that in another it's... shameless plug <laughs> <laughs> Which I recommend. Well, I'm going to tap you up for a review of it, Tony, when it comes out next year. Because so, um, <laughs> I think it'll be right up your street, I hope. Um, yeah, it was the... Nobody seems to actually know how long the relationship between Henry and Mary Boleyn lasted. Some say it was possibly a one-night stand. I read today that it lasted three... Someone else said it lasted three or four years, um, right up until when Henry Carey was born. They do every now and then suggest Henry Carey was Henry's son. Yeah. But the argument against that is Henry would have recognised him because he was so keen on proving that he could produce sons. But with Henry and Mary, the evidence seems to be a statement from Henry when he was accused of sleeping with Anne Boleyn's mum. Right. He said, yes, the sister, but never the mother. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it OK, doesn't it, really? Oh, yeah, that's OK. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it is one of those fascinating things. But I, I think it adds a, another bit of richness to the whole story, doesn't it? Of, it's a possibility. Yeah, it's tantalising because we don't know yeah. and can't know. <laughs> it's interesting, though, isn't it? Where you get these tantalising things like um, Never the Mother. And it could have been a, an off-the-cuff remark meant or even meant as a joke, you know? Yeah. And um, then centuries later, historians are, are agonising over the, the implications of it. These days, it'd be so easy with DNA, wouldn't it? It would. Um, it would just be so useful. <laughs> when I was a teenager, the idea of getting DNA from a, a strand of somebody's hair was not was science fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. If you, I, I did some interesting blog posts about opening royal tombs, and it always really comes down to proof, you know, and DNA and stuff like that. Who knows what, what they might be able to do in 20 years' time, you know? Yeah. At the minute, there's only so much we can do. That's right. Examining them like they did in the 20s. Yeah. But in 50 years' time, what they might be able to do then. That's right, yeah. I think that they might be able to lay hands upon the tomb and automatically find out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we digress just a little bit. <laughs> I don't like to point this out. The only reason I pointed out is that it means that I have rather less editing to do if we don't talk for too long about things which are nothing to do with it. Um, <laughs> well, this is only going to be five minutes long when you finish. <laughs> it is. By the time I've cut everything out, yeah, it'll just be a brief one. People watch and think, gosh, they were serious. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do? So you write novels, but they're incredibly well-researched, Tony. How important is it for you 
to keep to the historical record? Well, a mother of, of this a teenage boy in America contacted me the year before last and said that she just wanted to let me know that her son is learning about history from my books and he hadn't previously had any interest in history and now he's like going to do it for, as a career, you know. And that was a real sort of sit up and wake up moment because you've got a responsibility. I mean, I feel I've got a responsibility. Historical fiction authors, they can have time distortions and parallel things and God knows, they can have whatever they want. And that's absolutely fine. But in my books, I start with the history. And so, like I say, I... I, I visit the actual location. So when I was writing about Henry, it was convenient that he was born in the same place as me in Pembroke. <laughs> which was just down the road yeah but um i then followed in his footsteps all the way in exile to Brittany to remote um, chateau in the forest and stood in his rooms in the chateau which not many people have done and then i came all the way back to mill bay and then up to bosworth and timed it so i was there for the reenactment of the battle of bosworth that's the sort of lengths that i've gone to in the past and with the Devereux family i mentioned i think that i got hold of the Devereux letters and papers which you can just buy on Amazon now, which is great, isn't it? And all those, I can't even count, hundreds of letters and papers and all sorts there. Philip Sidney, for example, there's some wonderful stuff online. But my best resource is the um, Folgopedia Elizabethan Court Day by Day, which I'm sure you just type that into a search engine. Absolutely fascinating because they've gone to the trouble of every day Then, when there's anything worth mentioning is mentioned and sometimes referenced and um, further information and so much stuff. So I can type in uh, where what I'm writing about at the moment is 1594, the events of 1594. So I type in Elizabethan Court Day by Day, 1594. And then it starts off with Twelfth Night and where the Queen was, what she was <laughs> eating. And then it goes all the way through to the Ascension Day celebrations and then back to um, New Year again. And in between... There's, there's the Cecil papers where so many of the letters of, of Robert and William Cecil, complete letter, you know, dear, dear sir, I'm appalled at the way you're behaving, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Um, please send £100 and I'll send them And <laughs> you get a proper flavour of how they addressed each other, how they acted. Mm. That's just such... I, I mean, I, I couldn't have done this before the invention of the internet, I don't think, because that wealth of stuff, it seems like yeah. a go on forever, you know? Mm. Yeah, I have the same with mine. You can find so many um, chronicles from then, the 11th and 12th centuries online. It's like you don't have to go anywhere now to get such a breadth of information. Mm. But on the other hand, you type in Francis Walsingham with an E and not an I, and there's about three books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> That's what we want. So basically, there's still a lot of books left to be written. And um, the, the business that we do of, of taking what is often fairly dry material, source material, mm. and in our different ways, bringing it to, to life and making it relevant and putting some kind of interesting but valid narrative behind it. It's, mm. it's fascinating, isn't it? Mm. And the, when I finish a book, my mind is already away with the next one. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh... I, I was going to ask you what's next for your writing, but you've been dropping hints all the way through, really. <laughs> I've lost track of where we are. No, I, I'm, um, gonna, for the, I'm going to go beyond uh, the end of the Tudors into the, the next reign. I'm looking forward to it because the more that I look into it, the more I find that I don't know about it. And it's fascinating to see what happened to people like Penelope and Francis and even Robert Cecil, you think, what became of them after Elizabeth's days, you know? The show was kind of over in a sense in 1603, wasn't it? You know, the cast had gone. It, 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 it all, the world ended in a way, but yeah. obviously it didn't. But when people talk about the Tudors, it's as if beyond that it, yeah. and before that is not it's, worth bothering with, really. It's this whole thing about compartmentalising history, isn't it? Yeah. And it was yeah. much more overlapping. And I think in in Penelope, I, I show that they really were thinking about the succession. Yeah. No, it was hugely risky. And um, mm. they weren't alone. You know, most of the country was thinking, what happens next sort of thing. I will be providing people with a, a thread which runs right from the first meeting of Owen Tudor with Queen Catherine or Dowager Queen Catherine, right through beyond the death of Elizabeth to just have a little look at the 
the aftermath. So that's quite a, I don't know if it's unique, but it's quite a comprehensive coverage, isn't it? It might, it might well be unique, actually. I, I'm struggling to think of anybody who who might have matched that. I mean, there have been a lot of a lot of novels on the period, but they're usually quite, as you say, compartmentalised. It's been absolutely fabulous talking to you, Tony. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Uh, the, you know, I, I do I do quite a lot of these, and I, I'm notorious for the long answers. But this one's been particularly fun to do. Lots of lots of laughing, which I'm sure. Can't all be edited out. <laughs> no, no, no. We uh, we we like to be reasonably informal, yes. accurate but informal. I think yeah. is uh, is how we we like to roll, as it were. We do. We like to portray it as friends having a natter because I mean we've known each other for ages. Like you oh, say, God. it's yeah. been well, a the, good few years now. <laughs> before I, before I let you go, I'd just like to add that this week my blog, the writing desk, passed my own self-imposed milestone of 1.4 million visitors. Wow, wow. congratulations. And yeah. uh, both of you are invited to come back anytime you like. It's yeah. been great talking to you both. Yes, you happy, too, yeah. Happy to come back with my next book. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank okay. you very much, Tony. It's been absolutely fantastic yeah. talking to you. Yeah, and thank you very much for inviting me. Have a, have a great day. You too. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Tony, for taking part in our second A Slice of Medieval Goes Rogue and looking at the Tudors. Next time, we have Michael Jacks coming on, which um, I am really looking forward to. Michael's one of my all-time favourite authors, so I'm really excited about that. <laughs> so do join us next time. I've been Sharon Bennett-Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. Thank you very much for listening today. And if you enjoyed our podcast, why not subscribe? to ensure you don't miss the next one. Goodbye.